and legal disclaimer, where I tell you that the views, thoughts, and opinions shared on this podcast belong solely to our guests and hosts, not necessarily Brady or Brady's affiliates. Please note, this podcast contains discussions of violence that some people may find disturbing. It's okay. We find it disturbing too. Welcome to a live recording of an episode of Red, Blue, and Brady. Today, Kelly and I are speaking with three great guests, uh, the Executive Director of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, Josh Horwitz, Brady President Chris Brown, and Executive Council Member and National Chapter Coordinator for Team Enough, Stephan Abrams. Now, if the title of this podcast, Insurrection at the Capitol, What's Broken and How to Fix It, didn't clue you in on the topic, we're discussing the January 6th attack on the Capitol, when insurrectionists illegally entered the U.S. Capitol building while violently objecting to the certification of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's electoral victory as the incumbent president and vice president of the United States. Now, in doing so, this mob directly attacked not just the Capitol and those inside, but in many ways, the democratic process itself. So together, what we're doing in this special episode is discussing the urgent steps we have to enact to guard against further violent attacks and how gun safety underlines all of them. So I want to go ahead and, and just jump right in. And so to kick things off, I want to open it up to all of our panelists. I don't think we have to go into extreme detail recapping the events of the attack on the Capitol. It was very hard to miss no matter where in the world you were. But I will say, essentially what we saw was on Wednesday, President Trump holding a rally in Washington, D.C. It drew thousands of his supporters to the Capitol, despite a pandemic, uh, ultimately culminating in, in what we saw, which was a mob marching from his rally near the White House to Capitol Hill, where the electoral votes for the next president and vice president were being certified. Uh, it was then that we saw the Capitol breached, people moving past the police, uh, and violence ensuing. And so for all of you, I wonder if you can explain to listeners some of the reasons why this was so shocking, I think, especially because all of us have had experiences in D.C. at the Capitol building. You know, why was this so shocking, even if it was in many ways predictable? So, you know, it was predictable because this has happened before, not maybe to the same degree. But, it, you know, we've seen this across legisl legislators, across the le legislatures, across the country. Um, I was in Virginia for last last year, Martin Luther King Day, when we had 15,000 armed insurrectionists, uh, mobs come, you know, they want to call themselves militia. There's no such thing as a private militia that's a mob come to the state capitol and try to intimidate legislators. And we were lucky to get, a, not lucky, we worked really hard to get a bunch of gun laws done after that. But it, so so the so the the violent part of this that you know the sort of the, the marching part of this the armar part of that that didn't surprise me. What surprised me and really left me shaken was the response of the Capitol. So we can go. I'm sure we'll have time to go into that. But you know this is something that I've been chronicling for well over a decade. It started. You know you would think after the bombing of the Oklahoma City building, which is an offense against the federal government, that that would be the end to it. But I wrote my book because in the mid 2000s I started seeing this rhetoric come back, and I warned people that it's not just rhetoric; it will be action. And you know I went back to a blog I, I recently wrote about the healthcare debate. At the healthcare debate, you know we saw people hanging on scaffolding, threatening legislators. Didn't quite get to this point, right? But that should have been our wake up call. This, you know, this was predictable. 
was not predictable was just the baffling response of law enforcement on that day. And that's what really, I, I knew we were going to have a violent mob. That was obvious. Um, but the the idea that, that law enforcement was not going to be prepared um, and the incredible disparate treatment that we saw of the different crowds, you know, from from what we saw this summer to what we saw at the white at the Capitol with a largely white crowd was that was just so painful to watch that. But there's a history here, and this has gone on. This has been building for the last 15 years, and we haven't taken it seriously. And but the president realizes this is his private army, and he put the pieces together, and that's why we saw this crisis. I'll echo all of Josh's comments, obviously. And as someone who worked on Capitol Hill for seven years, I'm very familiar with the building, with the sense of security you have within the Capitol, because in order to gain entrance, there are magnetometers and it is a gun-free zone. It's intended to be. And so I can only imagine, I thought watching, uh, as I did, uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s speech, followed by the president's speech to this group. And we'd been following this as, as anyone at Team Brady knows, to know how much chatter was going back and forth among those planning to attend the rally uh, for potentially violent actions. And if you looked at the final count, just what I see so far, as of 4 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon, there are about 130,000 different folks who had seen or responded to commentary around uh, potential violence leading to the, the march over to the Capitol. And so I'm just incredulous as someone who used to work on the Hill and understands how things are supposed to work and how much effort is typically put into protecting our nation's capital, <laughs> our lawmakers, that there was not more of an effort made here and I do think we we see notable examples of officers who really did put their lives on the line. And I want to note that one of them has tragically lost his life. And it fills me with despair as an American that he lost his life at the hands, not of terrorists from somewhere else, of domestic terrorists inspired by the president of the United States. And that's in stark contrast, and sorry, it just makes me so angry as an American, although we shouldn't be surprised, as Josh well knows, and as you said, has predicted, all of this is culminating from hate-filled rhetoric and a, an increasing sense in this country, fueled by the NRA, that the way to solve disputes is to arm ourselves. And that's identified with a perverted notion of what the Second Amendment stands for. Let's face it, the way that Trump has been talking about and lying about a stolen election and that individuals basically have to go tell Congress to do the right thing here. The only right thing was to certify the votes of the Electoral College. What they did is an attempted coup fueled by the idea that it's exactly the opposite that it's standing up for some notion of constitutionality. And that perversion is made all the worse by knowing that we had huge police presence for peaceful protests related to police violence and racial injustice led by Black Lives Matter as a, as a huge contrast. Now, I'm not saying that involved the Capitol Police per se, but it was in DC. 
And so there's so many issues that I think are raised by this that really the only silver lining that I hope comes out of this is a renewed understanding that these issues are essential to be tackled and addressed. And I look forward to talking about some of the solutions that we think should happen as a result of this. My generation seeing one of the very few places in America as a safe gun-free zone as the U.S. Capitol. And not only was uh, Trump's actions already before um, the attack inciting violence and already an attack on our democracy, but what was shocking for me was that turned into an attack on our country. Um, And someone who was born after uh, post-9-11, this was the first time or one of the first times where I really saw our country under attack by its own people. Uh, And you look, uh, and we're probably going to talk about this later, but if you look at what Trump said after Charlottesville um, and then in comparison to what he said during the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, and then to say, we love you for attacking the United States Capitol and saying, go home, but at the same time saying, we love what you're doing. It was just mind-blowing. And the fact is that I watched those uh, floor speeches as well. And there was some great times where we saw people reaching across the aisle and talking about how what happened that day was horrible. But there's also other people who were saying the exact same thing that they would have said that morning. And people who wanted to attack and continue to attack immigrants um, who covered this country. And also wanted to talk about the Second Amendment, how uh, the Second Amendment is under attack when what we should be talking about uh, is that our democracy and our country is uh, under attack and that we need to build back better. And that's kind of what, what was the most shocking for me. Hey, JJ, can I follow up on that? Is that? Oh, always. Yeah. yeah. We're conversational. This is your party. Cool. Hang out. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, Stefan, I think one of the things that was really interesting about that is that, you know, it, it, you know, many of us have worked at state capitals across the country and we see all too often, um, you know, that we're, we're faced with people, you know, armed on the streets and in the Capitol up, it was up until last year that people were allowed into the Virginia Capitol with arms. Right. Um, And still in the Wisconsin Capitol and Michigan Capitol, they're allowed to bring an AR-15 in there. The threat to democracy, just of of exercising your right to, to participate in democracy is threatened every time you see that. But, you know, interestingly, in the Capitol grounds in D.C., you can't open carry. So there are plenty of people, obviously, with guns and concealed carrying. But the, the more, I would say, quote, advanced weaponry or more deadly weaponry, it, it was deadly enough. But you couldn't bring AR-15s on the grounds. And that's because D.C. DC needs its statehood, first of all, so it can do its own gun laws. But it still has a ban uh, on open carry. And that's something that I've worked on that Christian Heine from the Brady staff has worked on. And, you know, we've, we a couple of times had to save DC's gun laws when the Republicans were trying to get rid of it. And we were able to do that. And as bad as that was, it was so clear to me that if that mob had AR-15s and AK-47s and other types of weapons, it would have been even worse, much worse. And so, because people were obviously using violence and shooting guns. And so, you know, gun laws, guns have no place in the political process. Political violence has no place in the political process. But keeping guns and we'll, you know keeping guns out of legislators is legislatures is incredibly important for the democratic process and enhances democracy. There's no right to log with a firearm. There's no right to intimidate people. And I and I posit that on Wednesday, the fact that we have that ban on, on open carry in DCs and most concealed carry saved a lot of lives. 
And if I could just chime in, one thing that was shocking to me, not surprising, uh, I just want to be clear on the difference. This was predicted, um, and I think we'll get into that a little bit more, but in the same way that a lot of the videos of police brutality, um, a lot of people have said it, it opened their eyes to the experience of being a Black person or a person of color and what it's like to interact with police like that. It was very shocking to me to see how comfortable people were on this kind of largely white crowd was just wrecking the Capitol walking around on the floor like they own the place, intimidating police officers, getting in their faces. It was just very viscerally surprising to me to see just how comfortable these people were wreaking havoc on video with their full faces showing. And I just found that very, very surprising to see. And to kind of get a little bit more into the roots of this, I wanted to turn to Josh because as JJ said, you have predicted this and written about it long before even the Trump era Um, you were on it. And so I'm just wondering if you could talk about some of the warning signs and what actually sort of helped ring this bell for you. You already mentioned Oklahoma City and some of the rhetoric that came from that. But I'm just wondering, what are some other signs that clued you into? Yeah. So I I thought actually after Oklahoma City and, you know, there was a rise of the quote unquote, I don't know, I hate to use this word, but the militia, the self-styled militia movement, mobs, whatever. And, 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 you know, of course, the shooter at Oklahoma City made his living at gun shows, selling firearms, you know, was very involved with that crowd. And then the Oklahoma, you know, the federal building, the Murrow building in Oklahoma City was killed. It was exploded. Over 100 people were killed. Dozens of young people, children were killed. And at that time, I thought, well, that's that. That's that's it. You know, this whole insurrectionist that's, you know, let's take up arms against the government uh, is, is gone. But then, you know, and, and, they'll go, and the NRA will go back to being a hunting organization. Well, I was wrong about that. But what I was right about was in, in the mid-2000s, so before Barack Obama became president, I started seeing this insurrectionist ideology start creeping back in. And you can draw a line. You can really think about this. When Charlton Heston at the NRA convention, I think 2000, 2000, puts the musket above his head and say, out of my cold, dead hands, Mr. Gore, and, you know, and vote freedom first. All these, all these, you know, you know, these, these dog whistles towards let's use firearms for, let's use firearms for political purposes. Right. And they didn't quite say it, but they were getting there, but then it got, it got, it, it escalated. So then you saw, People like Mike Huckabee, former governor of Arkansas, Fox News host, the whole thing. He started talking about, you know, the Second Amendment's not about duck hunting. Well, if it's not about duck hunting, what exactly is it for, right? And then you saw the Heller case in 2008, where there was this open discussion, and even Scalia mentioned it, about this sort of private individualized militia. And I was like, oh my gosh, the Second Amendment is going back, is becoming insurrectionary. And then Sharon Engel, and you know, when she ran for Nevada Senate, and she talked about Second Amendment remedies, and I said, "My gosh, this is really coming back." And I think one of the big things you have to you have to marry right rhetoric with action. The rhetoric developed before the action, right? The rhetoric empowered the action, and so we saw a lot of people just sort of even Democratic politicians just sort of be, "Oh yeah, Second Amendment's about fighting tyranny." You know, tyranny. There's no such thing as an individual right to revolution. Let's just, that's not a thing, right? There's no, but, you know, the justification for getting rid of the assault weapons ban is we, you know, citizens should have the right to fight the government, to fight tyranny if the government became tyrannical. And then, you know, Gabby Giffords was shot, right? That's anniversary, you know, we see tragic anniversaries of these, right? We see during the healthcare debate, we started to see a level of violence. It was, you know, that, that, that started escalating. And then 
We saw, you know, you know, legislators being breached. And and personally, as someone who lobbies in the states, you know, we felt it not just we felt it physically when people were armed would come to our rallies and try to intimidate us, you know. And, you know, and people always say, well, I won't be intimidated. But you know what? When a bunch of guys show up with AR-15s who may or may not know how to use them, you're stupid not to be careful about that, right? I mean, that's dangerous. And so it is really, it affects your rights. So I saw this trajectory. Um, I wrote the book before we got to the level of the Healthcare Act, but I saw it in the far corners of the internet. And, you know, now with QAnon and all this stuff, it's just, you know, and and what, what Trump realized was there was a force out there. And I wrote a an article about this in the New York Daily News recently and a blog, but, you know, he developed this into his private army. And what's interesting is that it was there to fight government tyranny. But as soon as Trump came in, it just turned in a dime, which is what militias do. Right. I mean, they're not, they're not, there's no ideological there. They're full of hate. They're full of rage. They want, they want to make sure that people who don't look like them don't have power. That's what it's about. And so when they, you know, Trump grabbed that and he put it in his personal service, whether that was for his government aims or against the government aims, you know? And so that's the rise I saw. I thought it was I thought it was gone after Oklahoma City, but then I started seeing it, seeing it, and then I saw mainstream politicians. Newt Gingrich was used to say this all the time: Second Amendment's not for duck hunting, and you know, and you know, once you see that, you've got to take it seriously. And then, of course, Trumpism married that to action, and that's that's the rise, and it's unfortunate. But I've been screaming about it for ten years, and you know, I wish people listened. Well, and everyone should go read your book right now. Uh-huh. Democracy in the Insurrectionist Idea, University of Michigan Press, available on Kindle, Amazon. And I mean right now, but watch the rest of this first and then go purchase it, give it a read and and check it out. Because I I think that it lays it out, unfortunately, beautifully. Yeah, and maybe we can just make sure it's in the chat or a link to it so that folks can do it. It is an excellent book. And I I just want to say in response to something Josh said that I think is really something that was driven home to me in a way that unless you've experienced it, it's hard to put into words. I too, like Josh, am a Virginian and I was uh, participating in various of the public fora along with a lot of other people on both sides around Virginia's potential action following the horrific shooting in Virginia Beach. I was standing sort of on the field flanking the Capitol uh, talking to some other people. And one of the team, actually Christian Heine, who, who worked at CSGV and is at Brady, has been involved in the movement for a long time, came over to me and said, I want you to move. You need to move away from where you are. And I looked over and there were two men standing next to me with AR-15s. And the minute I saw it, I felt like I was going to vomit. And they looked very hostile. And it was terrifying to me. And let's face it, for a lot of us who are involved in the gun violence prevention movement, I personally have not experienced gun violence in my life. It is sad to me that we have so many people in our country who either have been victims of gun violence or have lost people who they're very close to, family members to gun violence, who are having to advocate in this environment. And I think Wednesday, Members of Capitol Hill, regardless of the party affiliation, the terror that you see on their faces isn't because they were afraid that they would get beaten up. They were afraid that people had concealed guns and breached the Capitol and not gone through the magnetometers, and they were afraid for their lives. 
this is America and it doesn't have to be this way. And I think everyone needs to put themselves in that situation and understand what's really at stake for people to come out and exercise their First Amendment rights to say things and fully participate in our society. And it should not be that someone's Second Amendment rights in any way trump those rights. And that's the balance that truly has been lost that we need to reinvigorate and and now back into our public discourse and use this opportunity to actually meaningfully reform our gun violence laws across this nation. Well, and to to speak on trumping of rights, uh, Chris, to steal words from you, I you know I think we have to be really clear here about about one of the things that at least in this particular instance I think sort of knocked the dominoes over, right? In that the president was actively fomenting dissent. The, the claims that the election had been stolen, which were repeated up until the point that people were literally marching from his rally where he had said that, um, entreating followers to fight, uh, Rudy Giuliani, you know, uh, advocating for a trial by combat, which is not something I thought I would hear someone say at the beginning of 2021. You know, and then even folks uh, condemning Vice President Pence for doing his constitutional duty. Uh, we heard reports of people when they stormed the Capitol screaming that they wanted, you know, to bring Pence to them. And, and so I think we have to talk about why this is so significant, that this is where the claims originated uh, and where, you know, sort of, I think the gasoline was poured on this fire. How, how do we handle a situation like this? I think that's a bit of an unfair question on my part, but, you know, where, how, how do you solve a problem of a mob that thinks it's a militia because the president has told them they are one? <laughs> Well, I, I'm interested in what Josh and Stefan both think about this. I think to me, it's it's two separate things, right? The first is fomenting the lie and knowingly or dangerously, recklessly, right? Uh, uh, creating a cause of action for people to take matters into their own hands. And Trump is responsible for that. And so are a number of members of Congress and other elected officials. And I think they have to be held to account for it. Uh, Brady obviously has come out along with CSGV and a lot of other organizations saying we need to exercise the 25th Amendment. I know there aren't that many days left before January 20th. But to me, even one day is too many with someone who, whose own staff is calling him manic which isn't news to us, but given the relatively short time left and the fact that he has the nuclear codes and he's not going to change his approach to how he governs, it's a risk and he should be removed. And I'm glad to see people like Senator Murkowski, finally some some folks who are in the same party as this man come out and say, he needs to go, he needs to go immediately. But Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Gomert and others who actually contested on the floor this election and know better and know that Joe Biden won equally were fomenting this and I think must be held to account. I think, frankly, they should resign. And if that's not going to happen, I think the House and Senate need to appropriately review and censure these individuals. Because if we don't do that, we are encouraging it. And that's exactly what's happened. And that needs to stop. And the second thing is, 
we need to enact laws that protect our citizens and actually really respond to this. Obviously, I want expanded Brady background checks, but I think the big thing that's also been laid bare here is we need serious review of our policing in this country. We need some kind of comprehensive police reform as well. A host of other things too, but those are the things that really come to mind. And, and also going back to what Chris said about accountability, obviously we're going to remember all those uh, floor speeches and uh, who was contesting this election and we're gonna hold them accountable. Um, but also um, the importance that we need to get this guy out now is so critical because the theme of this transition has been uh, the hashtag build back better. Um, and we need to start doing that today. Um, and I, I, I have two younger sisters and watching this event with them, it was just so shocking because they felt, um, because they watched this whole election, they were so excited about this. This is one of their first elections that they actually are gonna be able to remember. Uh, and they saw how amazing organizers went and out, out there and fought to protect our democracy. Uh, and now there's people who are saying that, uh, th that this election was rigged and all these things. So I think for us, we need to breathe a new life uh, into our faith uh, and, and restore our democracy and restore um, this trust. And I think that starts uh, now, uh, rather than, it does not start on inauguration day, it starts now and it starts with uh, all the people who are going to be helping invoke this 25th amendment. And hopefully people continuously from the Republican party are going to get the memo and can and join in the effort to do so. And I mean, if I can just add on to, you know, what is the importance of having the president foment an insurrection like this? I think one thing that's going to be really important in the weeks and months and years going forward is the role that misinformation has had and the role of like media literacy. And I think there's a parallel there to gun violence and the Second Amendment and the ways in which the gun lobby's ability to skew reality and disseminate myths to the population has allowed it to then be able to get the sort of gun policies and decisions that it has been able to do before, um, especially the past few years or so. I think it's related to what we saw here. And I think that's going to be really important going forward because whatever Donald Trump has contributed to it, he didn't start the fire. And I think that's going to be really important that we figure out a way to help re-educate. And I realize that word is loaded but to provide a solid understanding of the country, of the laws, of the rights and privileges that people have. And one of the things I want to turn to is that we saw an immediate difference jumped off the, the camera from the way that the crowds at the Capitol on Wednesday were treated versus the way that protesters this summer and at other hearings have been treated, especially the Black Lives Matter protests. And so, Stefan, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, a little bit about those distinctions and what may be behind them. Um, and what are some things that we can do to make sure that we don't see such discrepancies in the future? Yeah, um, for me, uh, even in my own <laughs> neighborhood in San Diego, when I went and protested um, in La Mesa, uh, we saw a very quick mobilization of the police uh, as soon as we got there. And there was tanks um, and heavily armored people, and they even were able to cut off a lot of our routes of a peaceful protest just to push us around and hit us um, with um, their shields uh, and batons. And it was, it, it was very frustrating for myself and a lot of the people who actually did, who have protested in DC to watch the different treatment of peaceful protesters compared to uh, these insurrectionists. And uh, there's a very clear difference there is there's people who are fighting um, just to be heard and who are doing so peacefully 
compared to uh, a group that was going to be violent and we knew they were going to be violent uh, and to see just such little resistance uh, was shocking. Uh, when when Black Lives Matter was protesting, they, they boarded every single city up uh, for nothing to happen. And for this, there, there was no response and there was there continued to be no response uh, throughout the day. And we were, and everyone was just watching, like, when are they going to bring in um, more people? And it, it was just something that we had to take a step back and realize that there's definitely some people uh, who were complicit in this attack, who were a part of the Capitol police. Um, and it's important that we realize that the same systems that we're fighting to find alternatives to policing uh, and systems that have continuously oppressed black and brown people um, for centuries, uh, we need to examine them and take a look at them and have real serious conversations um, about those alternatives and how we can make sure that uh, we are, first of all, allowing people to have their First Amendment rights who do so peacefully and have them represented and have them heard um, and ha- don't and they don't have to go through uh, being um, hit, shot, sprayed, um, compared to these people who attacked our democracy and were able to do so and just go home. That was crazy that they were able to just walk out the building with the things that were in the Capitol. It, it was it was just shocking and it was it was very painful to see that these people are going to have the platform to be heard. Uh, when a lot of the people who are protesting peacefully for Black Lives Matter uh, haven't been heard, and and, and I, I think the your systemic critique is right on, um, and it's something that goes you know that we've seen you know we saw it, it across the country, and so the I think Kelly, you said the, the just the comfort level that people had and the selfies mm-hmm. that law enforcement were taking in there was just unbelievable, but. Um, and so, so we need to take on. Then we have a, a big systematic issue. And we need widespread police reform, and we need, we just need to grapple with our racism as this country, like period, right? But there's also uh, something that we need to do that's maybe more narrow but very important, um, and that is, and, and this is I'm echoing the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives who called for this, who said we need a full after action review of what happened at the Capitol. And so we can't, you know, there is cer- certainly there are societal and, and, and system problems, but who were the actors here that, that enabled this? What was told to who? What type of planning was done? Because those, we need to root this out and understand this and identify the bad actors here. I mean, you know, potentially it's just gross negligence. I don't think so. But I mean, it's if we need to know because it seemed intentional, Right. And we need to know that and, and we need to root that out and we need to understand it and name names and understand who was communicating with who, because this can never happen again. And it can also give us a window on that larger systems. So, I mean, I think, you know, that after action review, the, you know, if it's a, a we need something akin to a 9-11 commission to examine this in detail. The same we exam we examined the shooting after Virginia Tech, there was a commission. We need to understand exactly where everybody was at all these points. Who was communicating with who? Why wasn't there, you know, why wasn't there a much better perimeter? And, you know, that's that's what helps become things become nonviolent, right? When you have the appropriate setup, you know? Um, and so this this was, you know, the, what the, what Noble says, said, you know, is that this was a, a gross incident of disparate policing. 
And that can't happen. We need to treat populations the same. And, and that allows us to be fair and, and allows not law enforcement a chance to actually not in, use violence. If they're set up properly in the right ways with the right barriers, maybe we'll get to violence, right? And we've started to see that at places around the country. So I am, I just think the narrow issue, right? One of the things we need is in addition to addressing our system issues, we need to know what happened in detail so that we can make sure it never happens again. And to go back to Chris's point, that state legislatures like, never have this problem either. Well, what are the lessons we learned? Because there's a lot of learning that needs to be done. If I could just add to that, I think one of the things that, in addition to helping to treat people fair, I think what Wednesday really showed is that when you do not have an actual risk-based method of policing or law enforcement, but instead one that kind of will treat certain people as criminals. And in this country, a lot of times it's black and brown people or immigrants, um, and then sort of downplay the threat posed by white people. It is no good for the country as a whole. And I just found it very striking from Wednesday, which is, you know, we oftentimes will assume the worst out of people who look like me. And that doesn't really do anything to advance public safety. I mean, George Floyd um, (laughs) in no way would pose anywhere near what we saw on Wednesday, but then underplay the threat posed by white nationalism and neo-Nazis and the like. And now we have a capital that is shattered and um, a legislature that was had to convene. And so I, sorry, not convene anymore. So I think part of what is important also in the disparate treatment is that it is not only problematic on the levels of race, but it's also just problematic on the level of national security by not taking seriously the threat posed by this revolution, we have a huge national security issue um, and it's leaving us vulnerable to all sorts of other attacks. And to kind of just drill down, sorry. Oh no, sorry, I interrupted, but I, I, I think what you're saying is really important. I guess part of it that I think about too is the chilling effect that that can have in addition to the disparate treatment based on the color of your skin Um, based on the issue that you're advocating for. And this view that some people may have that if you're siding with the leader, uh, the president and what he says, you're somehow safer than if you are castigating that person. And that is deeply un-American. It's deeply concerning, but we know just from our gun violence prevention movement as Joan Peterson, uh, hi Joan, who, who is listening has pointed out that when there was a peaceful activity of those who were protesting gun violence who were in the rotunda lawfully, Um, many of them were there to protest gun violence and they found themselves arrested. And I will say as a mother, my daughter was arrested for peacefully sitting in front of Mitch McConnell's office and taken away and charged. And she had, Nothing except her body and her words to raise these issues. So the double standard that we see here is deeply troubling and alarming. And I agree, this really needs to be investigated very carefully because people have to believe that these factors and the level of policing is based on purely objective threat assessment and nothing else. Yeah, because that immediately makes me think that we've definitely seen, for example, when we look at sort of the response that happened in terms of the amount of police, Capitol Police, National Guard that were deployed for the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, that there was a position that a black body itself is is, is dangerous. Uh, and that is deeply 
concerning. But we're not saying that we want violent policing (laughs) across the board. I want to be really clear to everyone. No one's calling for that. We're calling for accurate and adequate policing. And that's a different thing. Um, But I want to go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'll let other people speak. I'm just going to say, you know, equity goes to policing too. And it goes to tactics. And there are, there are appropriate tactics that can be used, you know, equitably and that we didn't see that. And we, and, and, and that's really, you know, um, I don't think anybody should suggest that the can't, the capital be ransacked. Right. Um, and that there, you know, and, 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 but the, the bottom line here is that we need policing reform writ large and we need to, what, what, what we do have left after that has to be equitably, uh, 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 you know, equitably used in whatever methods that's going to be. And so we need the bigger levels that we talked to, like the system reforms and the police reform, and we need to know what happened on Wednesday. And I just want to continue down this route that we've been talking about in terms of discrepancies in policing and talk a little bit about the role that white supremacy played in the attack. And I think one vivid example is that that was the first time that the Confederate flag has ever been unfurled in the Capitol. Um, it didn't even happen during the Civil War. And so I'd love to get everyone's thoughts about how we got here. But before we do, I just wanted to kind of define something for anyone who may be watching. Um, and that is when we talk about white supremacy, we're not necessarily saying that um, every single, that people of color cannot participate with it because it is a system. Um, and it's a system that kind of underlies our entire country. And the reason why I bring that up is because you will see in some of the footage that there were sprinkled in the crowd, the crowd was largely white, but there were some people of color. Um, and I've also seen people pointing out that some members of the Proud Boys have black wives or whatever to kind of say, well, they can't be white supremacists. But that assumes that white supremacy is not a system that you can participate in. And to the same extent, when JJ was talking about um, people being arrested this summer as part of the protest, or Chris talking about her daughter's experience, white people who ally themselves with people of color will often get the same treatment um, or or be placed in the category because we have a system that sort of um, will punish people based on how they act or allow people of color to participate with white supremacy. So I just kind of wanted to define that and then turn to the panelists to just talk a little bit about how white supremacy got tied up in a movement like what we saw on Wednesday. Well, starting off, it was fueled by the hate and racism of our executive branch, and it was enforced by police. Since the inception of America, uh, in this, it, white supremacy has been tied into our country's identity. And it's a country that touts itself as a democracy while suppressing the voices of millions of people um, and it cannot really be fully this 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 situation can't be fully addressed uh, until um, we dismantle the very structures that enabled this moment. Uh, until we get rid of the institutions and ourselves of the racism in this country that that the racism helped build and build the, a democracy that truly serves the people and makes people feel like they are being heard um, as well. I think the other piece of it, just to uh, sort of state the obvious, but the president has fueled this for a long time, from the time that he's been, he ran for office, uh, through many of the policies he put forward, through commentary that he made following the horrific rally in Charlottesville, led by white supremacists in which uh, an individual died 
saying there were both there were good people on both sides, right? Um, this idea of uh, equivalency between those protesting racial injustice and white supremacists. And that's very dangerous. And a lot of people who frankly were her, his enablers would behind the scenes say, well, I really wish he didn't do that. The big problem was not enough of them came out and said, if you continue to do this and behave this way, you are inspiring hatred-filled people to take action. And so for a lot of us who've been involved in this movement and who've seen it, while Wednesday was absolutely atrocious and seeing that Confederate flag in the halls of our Capitol, uh, disgusting, it's not a surprise. That's a lot of the folks that he has ginned up are exactly those individuals who are inspired by him to do exactly what they did. And that is a failure, not only for our country, but of elected leaders who should know better, who did not decry that action and who did not follow through on their oath of office to protect and defend the constitution. And, and it's deeply troubling. I think I, I second all that. Um, but I want to say that, 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 you know, that that structure, that racism um, existed well before Trump. Trump rode that into power, right? Um, but, you know, when I researched my book and was working on that, you could see that the gun lobby and, you know, and, and the KKK and other groups were just playing footsie with each other, right? And the gun lobbies, you know, some of the NRA board members and some of the other, other um, allied groups, you know, have this real history of racism. And, you know, that's part, of, that's part of what's going on here, right? Part of that movement is bringing these elements together around this, you know, this sort of insurrectionist flag that the enemy, the, you know, you know, Wayne LaPierre saying the guys with the guns make the rules, right? And and using that type of rhetoric saying that this will help us protect who we are. And 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 that's something that's really important here that this preceded Trump and if we're not careful, it will go on beyond Trump. And so thinking about this this insurrectionary idea about we have the right to fight tyranny. To tyranny, fighting tyranny means I want to keep my power and I'll do that with firearms. And so the NRA and the gun lobby has a deep responsibility here and their board members have been involved in racist behaviors and homophobic behaviors. Um, and they've been very aligned with President Trump. And so let's not forget that this started before President Trump. The gun lobby endorses him extremely early in the presidential cycle. And these things come together, right, like some awful tsunami. But don't forget that these things existed well before him. And he learned. He was, you know, he rode them to victory, which is horrible in its own sense. But let's let's remember that these things were there, that I wrote my book because I was starting to pick these pieces up and and our move after this has to, has got to be to permanently crush that, to understand that the language about fighting tyranny is racist, right? And to understand the power structures that it's protecting and to understand that we cannot, we cannot have, we can never give no countenance to any type of individual right for revolution or owning guns for an individual right for revolution, because that's a power structure in itself that existed before Trump. And we need to make sure that it's, finished after Trump. One more way that uh, white supremacy related to the 
insurrection that we saw Wednesday, among a lot of other reasons, is also just the role of voting and democracy itself. And just wanted to point out and flag that the whole, there has been a lot of talk about the Electoral College and how that system, because of the population centers and where people of color tend to live versus where white people tend to live, builds into it white supremacy. And so this election that's not even close at all, shouldn't even have been contested, but because of that system it was. And these people who were storming the Capitol were trying to undo a democratically elected um, vice president, sorry, vice president-elect and president-elect who was in part ushered into office on the votes of Black and brown people and Native Americans and other people of color. And so I think the electoral system and democracy also play a role in this, where when you start to see um, white supremacy waning in some ways in the ballot, people will try to take it through other means. And on Wednesday, they tried to use force to undo the votes of millions of Americans, but especially um, undo the votes of Americans of color. So just wanted to flag that as well. And I think that's such an important flag, Kelly, especially considering, you know, we saw so many GVP groups being involved in getting out the vote this year because of the fear that there would be armed intimidation at the polls. And really, a lot of small local groups pushed hard to get out the vote. We saw historic voter turnout. Um, And so, yeah, it's an attack on democratic processes flat out. Uh, But, and, and I'm seeing a lot of this reflected in a lot of the questions that we're getting in, which is, you know, this wasn't just one event. You know, this particular attack on the Capitol, it happened on the 6th. We can put sort of binders around it, but it's something that happened the day before and the day before that in different ways. And it's something that could happen tomorrow. So my question then for all of our fantastic panelists here is, you know, where do we go from here in terms of legislative action we can take in terms of pushing something like the 25th Amendment, in terms of pushing for say, stricter gun laws, you know, where where do we go when I wake up on the 9th? What should I be doing to try to hope to make things better? I think again, uh, small questions. I'm going to give you I'm going to give your lobbying collective a shout out. I they, they call me like our staff, like once a week. Can you go do a webinar for us? Can you help us understand this? Can you, you know, I'm like, of course, we, we, what do we do? So you guys are on it. You're out there doing great stuff. And for young people, get involved in that lobby collective. It's 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 amazing. And old people follow them. Yes. <laughs> like um, I do. And our Brady, our Brady um, staff and our Brady chapters do a great job as well uh, in, co- in combination with our collective. It takes all of us, the intergenerational um, combination of people of all ages coming together uh, for one issue because groups like Brady give the youth credibility as well. Uh, so th- thank you uh, again, Josh, for all the work you do with the collective. Oh, we, we love it. Thank you. Um, I, I would just I would just say, you know, sort of immediate action steps. Like, so it's clear that we can't give up educating about insurrections and we need to do that. And maybe I'll write, you know, a, the next chapter of my book or, you know, whatever. But we want to get out there. But I, I'm going to in, in, in like, the, you know, you're talking about the next 30 days. Like what 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 do um, you know, what are the things that we want to do? Number one, people have to be held accountable. Trump has to be out of office. He, he he cannot have an insurrectionist in chief, cannot have it. He has to go. If it's one day before the end of the term, I don't care. He has to go. So I think that's number one. Number two, we're going to be in state capitals over the next three or four months, and we need to be safe, and we need to have equitable policing, right? We need to be able to exercise our rights. And, we, and so the thing that we have to be able to do there is we don't want to be, I'm sick of being, you know, people armed, people trying to intimidate us. We have to ban guns at state legislatures. and 
It's polling places. Like we should never, no one should ever have to walk through a gauntlet of guns to vote. Done. So that's something that we're going to work hard and, and we should do that across the country. It's, and state legislatures are opening right now. So we need to make sure that happens. And then you got to marry that with, with we need to learn what happened at the, at the Capitol. And we need to make sure that when we're talking about people exercising their First Amendment rights, that they're protected, that they have equitable policing, but people that would do that process harm can't have that. So learning from the, the episode at the Capitol, focusing on, on equitable policing, focusing on police reform, all those things have to come together all at once. So like in the next 30 days, you ask, what am I doing? That's what we're going to be doing and uh, working hard on that. And of course, there's lots of other pieces that we'll be working on, but coming from that, you know, especially the guns at the, the state's capital, we, we've got to take care of that, that no one should have to be, no one should have to be intimidated by someone sitting there with an AR-15 while you're lobbying or testifying. And, you know, people from my staff last year got pulled to a safe room in, 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 in Virginia and they were testifying in uh, court, house courts and, and they got pulled to the, to a safe room because it was the crowd was getting volatile. So you just can't have that arm, you cannot do it. I agree with everything Josh and Stefan have said, and I do think that we can kind of divide the approach that needs to be taken into two different things. What do we do between now and January 20th to deal with the situation that we have? And that I agree with all of what Josh has raised, not just for the risks associated with how do we assess what happened and ensure it doesn't happen again, but we do have an inauguration coming up and we have various activities that potentially will continue in other state capitals. And that needs to be addressed by ensuring that other states don't allow guns in the state capitals. This is very basic. And we know from having Gretchen Whitmer as a guest on our podcast, how terrifying it is for her to know that there are people who can come into the state capitol with AR-15s and it happens. And that's where the plot to kidnap, try and execute her was born. So we need to focus on all of these remedies. We also need to galvanize and make sure that we seize the opportunity that we have. And as I said, Wednesday was horrific, but it's also an inflection point and let's use it for that. We now have members of Congress and their staffs, some of whom have already experienced gun violence, but others of whom haven't, who were traumatized by this event. We have 100 people, Americans, every single day who are losing their life to gun violence and hundreds more who are injured who every day, who have to live with those injuries for the rest of their lives. So we need to make sure that we push forward and tell Congress, you need to act and you need to pass laws that are long overdue. Look, the Brady Law was enacted more than a quarter century ago. There are gaps in the system that allow individuals we all agree shouldn't have guns to have easy access. One in five gains them today. And it's not appropriate for us to say, well, these things are going to be fixed just through executive action. All of us in the movement have been very focused on the things that this administration, the incoming administration, can do through executive action. And there, this administration is prepared to take a number of steps by executive action. But we need these laws passed. And Congress should do it because there's not debate in the American public about these solutions. So it's enactment of the Brady Law. It's ensuring that we have more funding 
in a variety of rare areas for gun violence research, for meaningful trauma-based care, for violence intervention at the community level, for a whole host of things that need to happen that recognize through funding that what we have here is a public health epidemic and it needs to be tackled and treated that way. We also need to focus on enforcement of the laws. The irony from the law, quote unquote, law and order president, right, which he is not neither about laws nor order, obviously, is that no focus or attention has been fo focused on actually enforcing the law for the folks who are primarily responsible for fueling gun violence in many communities across the country, and that's gun dealers. Instead, we focus on trigger pullers. The ATF is the agency that's responsible for enforcing those laws. We need real enforcement of those laws. I feel really good about who the AG pick is as a result of that, but that needs to be a focus. And the third thing I'll say is we need to end the NRA. And it's not legislatively that I'm saying we can do that, although bravo, Tish James. Um, it doesn't deserve, it deserves nonprofit status, like a super sun's fight deserves to, to sell organic. I mean, that's just the bottom line. They have created a dangerous myth in this country around gun ownership that somehow they stand for the Second Amendment. They are the most dangerous organization to preserve responsible gun rights in this country that, that exists. Bottom line. And we need to ensure that if we're going to hold up responsible gun owners, and we have many that work on Brady's staff, we focus on enactment of laws that everyone agrees on that actually protect public safety and continue to allow appropriate gun ownership in this country. Those need to be these pri the priorities that we have. And we as an organization, along with CSGV and a whole host of others in the movement, need to make sure we don't take no for an answer in this Congress to the actual enactment of this agenda. And executive action isn't good enough. We want to ensure that Congress takes action and bravo that we have uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff as two senators joining the US Senate. That gives us uh, not a perfect opportunity because we still have the filibuster and that needs to go too. But we have an opportunity to make real change that we wouldn't have before uh, with leader Schumer, who needs to make sure that these bills actually come to the floor for a vote. JJ, I'm sure you need to get us going at some point, but I'll just add on that public health approach, Chris. I know you know this is believe this as well, but um, we need to bring suicide prevention to the forefront as well. Right. That's part of the public health model. We've talked a lot about different things, but I want to make sure that we bring that to the forefront. And uh, I'm just, you know, the, this public health model that Chris mentioned is something that we've embraced. They've you know, Brady's embraced. And it's something that will we'll, we'll get great results because we're looking at gun violence in all of its forms. And to go back to what a lot of the people are saying in the chat is, like, how can I get involved? Like, what can I do? Um, to help. And one thing you can do is you can donate to groups like Brady and Team Up. You can donate to our lobbying collective. And we've had lobbyists, especially in Virginia, who've had to stay overnight and hide just in order to express their opinion to legislators the next day. Um, we have the most resilient um, and courageous lobbyists um, who don't like uh, when people say no to us. And we've had great successes over the past few years of us being able to push the ball forward on a lot of these things, uh, but uh, donations and being able to 
fund trips to the capital, uh, uh, fund uh, people who might not typically have access um, to our legislators and giving them an opportunity to tell their stories of uh, surviving gun violence and gun violence in their neighborhood uh, is a huge thing in um, tackling that issue. Um, so yeah, I think uh, we're wrapping up now, so I'll, I'll, I'll pass it over to JJ. See, this is, this is the danger of it being a week after an attempted, like a week of an attempted coup and, and a, after a year of a pandemic is that part of me is just like, time isn't a construct. We can just sit here and talk all night. But I understand people have lives. Uh, so unfortunately, a much longer conversation, I think, needs to ha- happen down the road. But I like all of you. So maybe we can meet up again and, and have a second one. I think what would be wonderful to end on, uh, a lot of folks have asked me fantastic questions about, I think, sort of specific actions. So for example, you know, how can you keep guns out of your local legislator? And so I think the best way to answer those specific questions or for folks to continue sending in questions that I think this podcast raised is I think that, you know, you should seek out <laughs> Uh, team enough, the Coalition to Start Gun Violence, and of course, Brady, and see all of the resources that we've been posting. So on the Brady end, I feel like I'm allowed to do the plug. You can, of course, go to bradyunited.org, and you can also, of course, listen to the podcast, Red, Blue, and Brady, for all of your fun and informational needs. Uh, how about for Team Enough and CSGB? First of all, you can go to our website, www.teamenough.org. Uh, sign up for our email list. Sign up. Uh, check Check your uh, where, where you're from and see if there's a local chapter you can join um, or you can create your own. And that's that's my job as the Team Enough National Chapter Coordinator is that I want to help you mobilize in your local community. And I'm really excited to be able to announce that in the next few months, I'm going to be releasing programs where no matter where you are, no matter what organization you're a part of, you should be able to um, have the platform to be able to lobby for gun violence prevention. If it's just a local city council thing or a state bill, we want to help uh, as Brady staff and Team Enough staff uh, to help train you and send you merch and give you the credibility of our platforms to help you lobby in every community across America. Um, So please um, go check that out. As well as if you are a youth or you know any youth, I am hosting um, an event this Sunday uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern uh, to talk about this week. And I want to give people the floor and members of Team Enough the floor to talk about what they're feeling and what our call to action should really be. There's a lot of work that we're going to continue to do, uh, but there's a lot of things. The recent events have uh, called for more action and more things that we need to be able to focus on. And I want to hear directly from you and what you're seeing. Um, and I think it should be a great opportunity for us to be able to mobilize as youth uh, and continue the fight to stop gun violence. Uh, our, our motto has always been, we are the generation that will end gun violence. And uh, I'm so committed to that. And I'm sure it's true. So that's that's good. If you uh, look above, I think my left shoulder here, wherever, yeah, you'll see CSGV. If you just put a .org after that, um, we have lots of resources, but also we've got some great resources on fighting insurrection um, and what that means and how to get smart about that, looking and, and just get knowledgeable on how to talking points. What does it mean? What's the meaning, real meaning of the Second Amendment, things like that. And while you're there, if you want to know something about our public health approach, um, you can look at go look at our Ed Fund, the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence. Um, there's a link from the CSGV website, or you can go and just go efsgv.org. Um, and there's just a whole tons of public health information there on almost any issue you can imagine. So, you know, get educated. And, and I mean, for us, 
It's always about our state partners. There are some great state groups out there and I hope you find them and I hope you partner with them. And uh, that's a great way because we love partnering with the state groups and and and, and I got to thank Brady for inviting us on a great partnership as well. So thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being such a good partner to us too, Josh. That's what we need to do in the movement and it's, it's really terrific. Absolutely. Let's hope the next time um, we have a live um, Chris and Josh that we're talking about something positive. Let's let's have our fingers crossed for that because I want to have a lot more happy episodes this year than unfortunate events happening. Absolutely. One day, hopefully, I will host our final live for our final podcast. That is, we've solved this problem, and I'm going to go work <laughs> with kittens. So, bye, everybody. <laughs> like, hopefully, one day we will get there. Maybe this is the year that that happens. So, fingers crossed. Um, I'll be, I'll be hopeful. Um, but in the meantime, I want to thank all of you so, so much for coming. I want to thank all of our listeners for giving their time for this. Uh, you know, let's, let's hope for the next time we get together, it'll be for happy news. Thank you all so much and have a great evening. Thank you. Thanks so much. Peaceful weekend. Hey, want to share with the podcast? Listeners can now get in touch with us here at Red Bull and Brady via phone or text message. Simply call or text us at 480-744-3452 with your thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas, pictures of cats, or whatever. Thanks for listening. As always, Brady's life-saving work in Congress, the courts, and communities across the country is made possible thanks to you. For more information on Brady or how to get involved in the fight against gun violence, please like and subscribe to the podcast, get in touch with us at bradyunited.org, or on social at Brady Buzz. Be brave, and remember... Take action, not sides.